right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today with Phil Lieben. Hi, Phil. How's it going? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm super excited to have this conversation. I uh, already told you uh, I had, some, um, uh, had a really great time, um, you know, just doing my research prior to the podcast. Um, so I'm definitely excited for this one. And, um, you know, I always have this icebreaker question, um, you know, for starting the podcast, which I always say is the easiest question for for the guest, um, because it's, you know, actually just talking about yourself <laughs> um, would be definitely, you know, good if you would kind of give us, uh, you know, the background on where you're coming from, um, you know, through the different stages of your professional life and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. Well, I was born uh, in the Soviet Union in uh... 1972 and um, came over as refugees uh, with my family when I was uh, eight years old in 1979, came to New York um, and uh, just basically became a computer nerd. Uh, you know, we lived in a pretty dangerous neighborhood and it really wasn't really much to do uh, outdoors. I just sat in my room and begged my parents to get me a personal computer and uh, I just kind of, yeah, started nerding out on bulletin boards and video games and programming. Um, Went to college in 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 Boston and and started my first kind of serious company. You know, I was working as a programmer, as an engineer, like all throughout school, and then we started our first serious company with a few friends of mine from college back in 1997, which was a one of the very first e-commerce companies. So the the, the that was the dot com era. Like the the web was pretty new, and everyone was running around saying dot com. Uh, and so we started a company that we worked on some of the very first things you could buy uh, online. Um, and uh, did that for a couple of years. It uh, became just absolutely exhausted because none of us knew how hard it would be to actually run our own company. Uh, but then we got really lucky. We were able to sell that company in 2000, uh, about 20 minutes before the, the dot-com bubble burst. So we, we were able to sell. And uh, a couple of years later, the same team, you know, we, we, got, we finished our, our stint at the company that bought us uh, and decided to start a second company. And that was a security company. We started that right after 9-11. Uh, so we did lots of, uh, we did big like government and military and bank, you know, security stuff and uh, ran that company for six or seven years, sold that. Uh, and then we all sat around kind of deciding what to do next. And we thought we want to build something for us. So the previous two companies we had built for, you know, for other, for customers, we kind of did what you're supposed to, right? Which is like, always think like, what does the customer want? And we we're just kind of tired. We kind of said, we don't care what the customer wants anymore. We just want to, want to build something for us where we're the customer. And so uh, we... Decided to work on uh, what became Evernote. Um, we were in Boston at the time, so we moved to California. I met this brilliant guy named Stefan Pachikov, who was also, um, uh, he had a startup working on something very similar. We kind of merged our two teams in 2007 and formed a modern Evernote. Uh, and I ran that for nine years, I think. Um, and then replaced myself as a CEO when it got to be just bigger than, than I thought I was particularly good at. 450 people or so um, and I thought I would kind of retire so I became a VC and became an investor uh, turned out that I wasn't very good at that job uh, I think investing especially like early stage tech investing is like a very specific skill set which I just didn't, didn't have and didn't care enough to cultivate uh, so started uh, All Turtles which is the product studio that I currently run um, and then out of that we've, we've launched a few different companies uh, the one that I run full time myself is called mm -hmm, which is a video a video communications company for distributed teams. That's a very <laughs> long version of all the stuff <laughs> I've done. And I moved from San Francisco where I was living in San Francisco for 15 years. I moved a couple of years ago to Bentonville, Arkansas, 
which uh, it's really lovely here. <laughs> Great. Um, you know, before we kind of, you know, nerd out uh, about uh, everything product, uh, I, want, I just quickly wanted to ask because um, one of the things uh, I... Um, I saw you you say on on a, on a previous interviews, um, you know, kind of underline the the uh, importance around um, acknowledging luck. Um, so, you know, speaking of Evernote, and you mentioned that you met met this other guy, um, Stepan Pachikov, right? Um, mm -hmm. What was what was kind of the backstory for you guys to meet that you know eventually that added up and then you kind of joined together and uh, you know that company kind of formed. Well, we were introduced. So after we had sold our second company, the security company called Core Street, uh, kind of figuring out what to do next, and a friend of mine knew this guy, Stevan, and worked with him for a while and said, hey, you know, this other guy that's, that's kind of talking about a similar thing. You know, we, we, were, we had um, just started a project that we were calling Ribbon mm -hmm. that was meant to be like an external brain, like a second, a second memory. And he said, yeah, this is, there's, this, uh, there's this guy, Stevan. Uh, he's in California, and he's working on kind of similar concepts. And... Uh, uh, you guys should meet. So, you know, I wanted to be in, in, in California anyway, because I wanted to start, I, I wanted to do Evernote in, in, in the Bay Area, because I'd heard so much about, you know, the Bay Area and San Francisco and Silicon Valley. So I really thought, okay, this is where I want to be anyway. Um, because I thought that'd be the best thing for the company. So I, I flew out there and, uh, met Stefan and, you know, he had his company. Um, we went out to lunch, uh, and there was a really bad sushi restaurant. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Sorry. I thought it was bad at the time, but now my standards now that I've been living in Arkansas for two years, my standards have really lowered uh, for, in terms of what I consider decent sushi. So it was, it was an okay sushi restaurant. And uh, yeah, we sat down to talk and, you know, he asked me, uh, the first thing he asked me was, um, well, so what do you think is your, like, what are you really good at? What do you think is your core skill? Um, and I said, uh, I think it's eating. I think I'm really good at eating. And he, uh, to his credit, kind of took that as a serious answer. Uh, and so we talked about eating. We talked about food for like three hours. We didn't we didn't talk about work at all. We just talked about food because I, I was serious. That is what I think I'm best at. And he was pretty good at it. And we had a fascinating conversation about all the different types of food and the right way to eat and the wrong way to eat. And you know, a few hours later, we decided, yeah, we should just we should just combine the two companies uh, because you know it's just more interesting that way. Uh, but we, we we talked a lot more about food than we did about about work. Interesting. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of really spend the time uh, today talking to you about, um, you know, experiences and opinions around, um, you know, building great products. And, um, you know, one thing that I, um, and I picked that up kind of as, 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 you know, something to start off with, um, which a lot of people say, um, in, in kind of like the startup world, you know, is uh, that ideas are really kind of cheap and execution is everything. Mm -hmm. However, um, you know, one could also argue that the first step really kind of also requires picking the right ideas or, you know, slash problems um, to solve. And so if you look back kind of on your experience from, you know, starting companies um, and, you know, also working in venture capital, seeing, you know, many, many different teams um, and companies, what is your opinion today when it comes to really the approach of picking the right ideas or problems to solve and building products around them? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to, uh, I think it's hard to generalize uh, too much, mm -hmm. uh, all of this stuff. Um, you know, it's hard to draw lessons from small sample sizes, right? Most people really are drawing lessons from from small sample sizes. 
uh, it, it's, um, I think I've probably figured out a few things that are, that are repeatable. Um, but you know, definitely there's, there's a lot of it is, is luck. A lot of it is, uh, you prepare yourself, um, so that when you get lucky, you can a, recognize that, you, that you've gotten lucky, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is itself kind of a skill. Like I think it's, it's not always obvious when you're, when you just got lucky, uh, you recognize that you've gotten lucky and then you really try to like execute, you really try to double down on that. And, and the flip side of that is you realize when you've been working on something for too long and it's just not going that you, you know, you stop working on it. Um, and this is probably when I said I wasn't particularly good at, at, at being an investor when I had the, the, the VC job. Um, I think there's a particular skill for early stage tech investing. This isn't, this isn't true for like all types of investors, but I think if you're like an early stage VC, uh, I think you really have to be driven by, by FOMO by the fear of missing out, you know, you really have to think about like, well, okay, who's working on what, what are the deals that are happening? Who's talking to whom? Like, what am I missing out? You have to be like very motivated by, by this, this idea of like what you're missing. And, and, and I think the reason I wasn't very good at that job is I just, I just don't care. Like I'm not motivated by FOMO. I have no fear of missing out uh, because there's, there's so many things that I could be doing. Or I could be working. I don't really care what I'm not working on. I'm much more motivated by not wasting my time on the wrong thing. I don't care if what I'm working on is the best possible thing. I just care that it's that it's working, that it's going well, and that I'm just wasting my time. I'm kind of much more much more sensitive to the fact that I can only work on a small number of things um, at any given time. Uh, and so, I think a lot of the process is just a combination of like picking the right uh, picking the right problem. You know, picking something that um, that you feel like you really understand and that you're passionate about, and then. Uh, deciding like what what a success look like, and when you see indications of that, doubling down. If you don't see indications of that, moving on and and doing something else. Yeah. So, what well, what are then you know I, I think what you mentioned is really important is, is um you know around saving saving time right because one can say you know one can waste a lot of time around pursuing kind of like or going through stages of validating an idea or like you know. Try, or picking an idea that that might seem right at the moment, but then is not. So, what is your, uh, you know, what are, for you specifically? Again, even though you know you said we're talking about small sample sizes, what has kind of been the formula for you now to you know, kind of work around and and optimize for efficiency when it comes to testing these things? That's a good question. Um, I, so I, I guess the way that we the way that I think about products, the way that I think about what to work on right now. So we, we have we, we have this process uh, at All Turtles that we've tried to to kind of formulate about how we uh, how we pick what to work on. Uh, there's basically four parts. It's like four steps. Um, the 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 and this isn't the, obviously the only way you can do it. Like there's plenty of approaches. This is just what we've decided on. Um, the the first step is that we only work on problems. So I think there's a lot of companies, a lot of projects that get started. They're not start trying to solve a problem. They're doing something more creative. They're doing something more opportunistic. They're doing something because they think something's cool or there's an opportunity. And we don't do that. I don't really know how to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. That's a very admirable way. If you're good at if you're good at that kind of stuff, uh, that's great. And I know I have lots of friends who are entrepreneurs who have started amazing things that weren't really solving problems. They were just doing something because they thought it was really it was really great. You know, like what what problem was TikTok solving? You know, to name a recent example. Um, but I don't know how to do that. So what, 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 what I think I know how to do is to identify a problem. And the first step is to actually state it as a problem. So before, before we're going to work on anything, we have to say, what is the problem? Explain the problem as if it were a problem. Uh, and then point to real people alive today 
that suffer from this problem and, 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 and quantify what the impact is. What exactly, what are the negative consequences of this problem on these people? And that just that exercise eliminates probably 95% of startup ideas and pitches and ideas, mm-hmm. uh, uh, startup pitches and, 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 and their own ideas, because um, it's actually not that common for people to, to have this clear idea of like what problem are they solving and who, who has this problem. And it makes sure it's a real problem, not a hypothetical problem in the future. Like if you have to be able to actually like bring me real people that say, yes, this is one of the most important problems in my life. And here's the, here's the impact. Um, and then we ask ourselves as part of that first step, okay, do we want to help these people? Like, is, is this a problem that's worth solving? Cause not, not every problem is like, we don't, we don't care the same about every type of problem and every type of person. So we, we just ask like, do we care enough about helping these people with this problem that is actually worth dedicating? significant portion of our lives uh, for. So that's kind of the first step, a stage is a problem. The second step is we need to have, uh, we need, and I violated the second step all the time, uh, but we try not to. Uh, we we, we, we want to make sure that there's really strong founders, uh, that there's people who are in love with this problem. They love the problem, they were working on it their whole life. Uh, they know, they've been fascinated about it for years. And so they're like the smartest people in the world about the problem, we can talk about it endlessly. And they're in love with the problem, but they're—they're they're, hopefully they're indifferent about the solutions. Like they'll iterate through lots of solutions because like what they really care about is is, is making the problem better. They're not—they're not like they're not focused on a particular way to solve it. They don't really care about that. So they're not—they're not fetishizing a particular technology or something like Web three or whatever. Like this is all like none of these are problems. These are these are a very different way of going about thinking about it. Um, you know, once we know what the problem is and it's worth solving, and we have great founders, then we look at the the the, the business model. Um. And we only allow one type of business model, which is direct revenue. Uh, we won't work on anything, and I won't work on anything that isn't direct revenue, meaning where you make money because people or companies pay you to use your product or to have your product. Uh, no no advertising, no data selling, just like very honest direct revenue. Again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those other models. I just don't like them. I find them too 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 distracting, too complicated. And, 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 and they disalign incentives. And they lead to they lead to all sorts of problems. Like they lead to companies like Facebook, where you know what your users actually want is has nothing to do with how you make money. And uh, I think I think it's just kind of bad trying to do that, or at least let's just say more complicated than I want to handle. And then the next, the, the last criteria is probably the most important one, which is the the timing. Um, we won't work on anything. We only work on things that we think we can get to market for real. Like we can make a real version of this this year like in the next year maybe year and a half at most so 18 months at most before we can like actually like have a real product in use by real people and and, and measure whether or not it's actually working uh so nothing that's like a long-term science project again nothing wrong with that obviously i'm very happy that there's other kinds of companies that are that work on five-year projects 10-year projects because you know you can't go to mars if you say okay it has to be a year and a half you can't you can't build an electric car you can't you can't cure cancer you can't do all of these things but I don't work on those things. I work on relatively simpler things. So it has to be done in 12 to 18 months. But, and here's the, here's the important part, in a way that would have been impossible two to three years ago. Mm-hmm. So we ask ourselves, why is this approach possible this year for the first time in the, in the universe? Like, why couldn't have this succeeded three years ago? And if it could have, then it's very suspicious, right? Because if it's a real problem, and it could have been solved three years ago, but it wasn't. And it's something, something, something's off. Maybe we don't understand the problem or something. 
If on the other hand, you still can't solve it, then it's also bad because then we're not going to solve it either uh, in that year and a half. So, so we have this very small window of time where we say our proposed solution has to be possible to build this year. And it was never possible before. It was never possible earlier. What's, what's changed? So usually there's some kind of technology change or there's a social change, sometimes both. Um, and so that's the filter that I use. Uh, and so that, to me, that eliminates, you know, more than 99% of all possible things. And so anything, anything that, anything that passes through those fourth stages and they're still left, is like interesting. And we look at it. Yeah, that, that is, I, I, I thought about it exactly. Like when you were at the fourth point, I was like, already, okay, that really eliminate, eliminates like most of the stuff, especially when it comes to, like, I mean, you know, even for the second point already, right? Like finding people that are, you know, like dealing with a problem or have like this problem on their mind for like, you know, I don't know, let's, let's say ages, right? Or just like for a really, yeah. really long time and are really passionate and carry kind of the necessary experience in order to solve that. I mean, just like, if you look at the, you know, the, the way, um, you know, kind of venture capital has evolved and, and especially in the recent years, right, with like all this kind of hype around like founding, you know, starting companies with venture studios and just like brute forcing things into life that like, you know, already misses that criteria by, by, by like most of the, most of the cases, right? It's, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's super hard to find people like that. Uh, I mean, it's right. But this is, this all comes back to what I was saying about like, I can do this because I'm not motivated by FOMO. I'm not motivated yeah. by the fear of missing out. Because obviously, if you apply this criteria, you miss out a lot. You miss <laughs> out everything almost. And so if you really care about not missing something out, you can't do this. It's a very different, very different mentality. But since I don't care about what I'm missing out, I care much more about working on high quality things, not the best possible thing, just something that's really excellent. Then it, 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 it works really well for that. You know, for yeah. that. And then I just try to surround myself with people over the past few decades that you know, I've similarly motivated. I think you sort of make the social, you make your own like, you know, personal and social and friend networks and professional networks kind of based on people who are resonate with big, similar ideas. And so this, 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 this style of thinking is maybe not very common, but it's common in the people that I talk to every day because we've sort of chosen to be around each other for years. Yeah. If, if we, if, if, if I have like, this, um, you know, there's a follow-up question I had for the first one, for the first point, right. Which is about like uh, finding, Finding this, um, you know, f finding this recurring problem with people, um, you know, and, and if we're talking about, uh, um, let's say, most of the cases around, um, uh, for, for, you know, for B2B products, or to say, the B2B environment, there's, you know, there's a lot of problems, right? And a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of inefficiency, you know, and, and it, it is all, and, and it is all about kind of like, okay, what is, how do you, how is importance being placed of that specific problem, right? Even though there's probably like, you know, there's uh, hundreds of problems or thousands of problems where there's many, many people that, you know, that that have that problem, but it's about kind of like the prioritization of these problems. So how do you go about, you know, what is kind of a rule of thumb or how do you benchmark that when, when you know, kind of looking looking for that or validating basically, basically the problem? Well, remember, the problem is only the first step. Uh, and so... If we've identified a problem that we think is very worthwhile, but we don't have a proposed solution and proposed founders and a proposed direct business model and a window that we think it's possible to do in the next year, but not yeah. but wasn't possible before, then like we're not just going to keep banging our head against the wall on this problem. Somebody should, but that's not that's not our style. That's not that's that's not that's not our you know modus operandi. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like there's there's many many very important problems that we're not directly working on because we don't we don't have a good solution in mind. Uh, yeah. And we're not a, we're not a think tank. You know, we're not a university. We're not a research shop, uh, <laughs> and we're not a big company with a giant research budget. Like we we work on specific things. So I think like you know, once we have plausible answers to those four questions, it's just not that many things every year. And, yeah. and those, those are the ones that we work on. And of course, if we have, you know, sometimes we get, we get lucky and, uh, you know, we have this good problem to have, which is like too many, too many ideas that actually pass all four and they're all possible. We can't work on all of them because we have, we don't have resources and we have to like prioritize them. And, you know, that happens sometimes. And, you know, that's a nice problem to have and it's difficult, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen that much. Um, especially since, you know, when we say that, um, we, we have, we have to get it to market in, in, in 12 to 18 months. We don't mean that we're going to stop working on it after that. Like if it's going well, we keep working on it forever. It's just that we have to have that initial real, you know, product market fit test within, within yeah. that 18 months. What, um, you know, in your opinion, um, how, how do you define a good product person? You know, from let's say all the people that you've worked with and all the different types of founders that you've seen and, and your own kind of modus operandi and, you know, just like, how do you, what, what does make up a, like a good product person? I think there's, that's a, that's a really good question. I, 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 I think there's, um, uh, I think there's a few, there's no like single magic recipe or magic formula, but I think there's a few attributes that are, that are, that are very important. I think probably the biggest one is, is, is empathy is, is a huge amount of empathy is, is this ability to really put yourself in the position of the people who you're, who, who you're making the product for, who are meant to, 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 to use the product uh, and really kind of understand what they, what, what their pain is, what they want, what they don't want, you know, what they're going to like. And, and to, to, to have that like very, very empathetic design, and you know, I, I really I learned some of this from um, at Evernote. One of my board members was was Esther Dyson, um, who's you know this legendary uh, figure in the on, on, on the internet. And uh, she um, uh, she, she I, I learned a lot uh, from her around specifically product thinking and product design thinking. And um, one of the things that 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 kind of made that she made me think about is. Um, there's all this talk about, you know, user-centric design, kind of user-centric, you know, or like person-centric, you know, product design, where you, 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 you know, if you're like a big company, you're doing it like the old-fashioned way, maybe you're, you're designing things based on the requirements, based on the business goals. There's like business-centric design. User-centric design, human-centric design is like you're building it based around what's best for the person, for the user, for the customer. But even that's not enough. What I really learned from from Esther and you know and other people, but she was sort of central in in making me think about this was was empathetic design, which is you're you're making something that isn't actually just for your users. It's it's for the whole world. It's for people who don't use your product as well. So you have to you have to be able to put yourself you have to you have to be able to put yourself in the head of people who use your product, and you have to be able to put yourself in the heads of people of everyone that those people interact with, even the ones that don't even know about your product. And you have to say, how does this change? How does this change their lifestyle? And is it is it is it changing in a way that you want? And that kind of empathetic design is is rare. A lot of companies don't have it. Uh, so, I, and, but I think it's a responsibility of I think it's the responsibility of 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 the people who make products uh, to 
worry about the impact of those products, not just on their customers, but on, on the entire planet, on the entire world, and, and, and not do something that they think is, is bad overall, even if it happens to be good for the people who can use their product. Uh, right? For example, um, you know, something like Uber can't just look at, okay, well, is it good for the riders? Is it good for people who pay us to ride in Ubers? They can't, even, and they can't just say, well, okay, is it good for the drivers? They also have to say, well, is it good for people who never take Ubers, who just live in cities where Ubers operate? Like, well, what, what, what happens, you know, if Uber is successful, what does it do to the buses and public transportation? And like, sort of, does that change? And, and, and they do think about all this stuff, but maybe, maybe not from the beginning, which they, they, you know, they probably should have. Um, I, I think, I think that that's like the first prerequisite for me of a great product person is I want to, I want to be talking to someone who I feel has this enormous store of empathy for people who are, who are trying to make the product for, but actually for everyone, for, 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 for people who live in the world where, where the product exists. Um, and empathy is not a soft, squishy thing. I don't just mean someone who like, you know, feels for people. I, I mean, I mean, real understanding. I mean, real, like, like a, an ability to really put yourself in the shoes and the head of these people and to say, what impact is this going to have on your life? What's it going to feel like? And then of course, there's many, 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 many other skills. Uh, but that one is a, is a big one. And, uh, you know, I kind of like, kind of like with the four criteria, like we, I, I like to set things up in a way that gets me to a no as fast as possible, just more efficient. Right. So like whenever we do anything, we always try to like disprove it first. We try to get to a no. So we do like the hardest thing we do this over and over and over again. So like when we're considering an idea, like the hardest one is that, is it a real problem? Like that's, that's first because most of them just wash away. When I'm thinking about, you know, whether someone's a great product person, I put the hardest, the hardest thing first. The hardest thing is having near universal empathy. And uh, if you don't have that, then I don't need to consider you further. Uh, and if you do, then of course we move on to lots of other things, which are easier, but not as important. It's very interesting because I, I didn't expect that, you know, kind of like extended part in your universal empathy, because, um, you know, if you, if you talk about specific, so if you connect that to towards you know, um, founders caring about a problem, you know, that you could kind of like relate that to product people so that like, if you know, the product that you're working on, that you really care about the user that is using that product, right? So mm -hmm. kind of that extended part is like, okay, you know, it's like we're looking for a person that's in general, like, you know, deeply cares about everyone, you know, outside of just like the primary user that you're building for. I think that's like, it's a very challenging, challenging, yeah. right? cares isn't isn't right i don't it's not, it's not that they care about everyone that's 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 i didn't say it cares uh, i think empathy is a much more specific and useful emotion than caring like i actually would be fine with someone who doesn't care about anyone i can mean, like be a total self-centered egotist if you have a gift of actually understanding everyone you know whether you like him or not whether you care about him or not i'm not looking for necessarily for the emotional connection i'm looking for the deep understanding usually unless you're a psychopath if you understand someone, you care about them because that's just kind of the way that the, the human brain is wired. But you can certainly care about something without understanding it. And this, the caring is nowhere near enough. Um, you know, my dog clearly cares about a lot of things. I don't think he understands those things very well. Like it's not, that's not, that's not the same as having empathy. Like my dog cares about me a lot. Um, does he understand what I'm well, me very well? I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think the empathy thing is it's very hard, um, and uh, uh, but you know you can you can ask for it, you can test for it, you can kind of see see what it's like, and then once you have that, then 
that's not the end of it. There's other things, you know, you need to, you need to have someone who's very good at, at prioritization. You need to have, uh, you know, maybe like the two most important skills are once you kind of clear the empathy hurdle is, uh, um, you know, critical thinking and time management, maybe are the two, the two biggest ones. You just need someone who's just not going to, not going to fall into sort of magical thinking about things and not going to fall into wishful thinking about stuff. And that understands, you know, the, the very limited resource of time and kind of knows how to sequence it and what to do first and all that stuff. So, but, the, but the, those are things you can practice. Those are things you can learn. I think the empathy stuff, you, you can, you can learn empathy too, but I think that's like, I think you really need to be pretty, pretty gifted with it before you get very far. You said test it. How do you test for it? You know, you, you ask, you, you ask someone to explain if they've, if they're, proposing a product you you know you make sure that what they're talking about and what they really understand is the effects of that product on, on the lives of the people who interact with it whether they're the customers or not and if they're primarily talking about how they make money on it then then it's not interesting hmm. uh, and if they haven't thought about the impact of the people who don't use it then, 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 then that's not interesting um, so usually you know you just talk to people you you said something you know in in this interview that I watched from you. You said that you know very good products have a strong opinion, yeah. And um, I like that sentence uh, <laughs> uh, a lot. So and I wanted to kind of like put this question um towards it. So you know having a strong opinion that that needs to be coming from somewhere, right? And um, you how do you balance neglecting, you know, cost the, the customers you know, let's say mass of, 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 you know, of opinion, or let's say the, the variety of different kind of requests and opinions in general, and then balance that in order to like, you know, also with the reality of acquiring pairing, paying customers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of details here. So one big example mm -hmm. is like, what are customer opinions good for and what aren't they good for? Uh, I feel like people really fetishize customer feedback, like way more than, than they need to. Like every, every startup founder, one of the, one of the most basic things that I advise startup founders that I talk to is to just like, forget all the crap that they've been told about the importance of talking to customers. Um, because it's just like, we just think that it's like, I don't know why, but every, every time anyone that has like an entrepreneurship program or whatever, it always starts with like, do idea validation, talk to customers, talk to five customers, talk to 10 customers. And like talking to customers is, is important as long as if you know what you're doing in a very specific time and for a very specific type of talking, it's not, it's very much not useful for, for, for just like a lot of random stuff. So, you know, it is the job like specifically on, 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 on customer feedback. It's not your customer's job to tell, tell you what to build. They're not going to be good at it. Uh, they can't give you suggestions. I mean, they can, but they're, for the most part, are going to be pretty random, pretty not, not very good suggestions. You can't rely on customer feedback to learn about, to decide what, what you should make. Um, the customers or people in general are very good at communicating when they're unhappy, when there's a problem. And so a very useful source of feedback is, is, is unhappiness, either with your product or with the world or with whatever. And you should understand that very, very well. You should understand like, where's the pain? What are they unhappy about? And then you have to come up with a solution. The customers aren't gonna come up with a solution. If the customers knew the solution, they would have solved it um that your designers need to, to come up with a solution that's what that's the job of the product people um and early talking to customers for a startup like before you have a product like early on completely useless literally just never do it because 
why the hell are you talking to customers before you even have a product? Like if you don't understand them well enough, why are you working on this field? That violates rule number two, right? Founders that already know so much and care about a problem that they understand it inherently. If you don't understand it, why work on something you understand? Look, of course, you should understand people who are in the community that you're trying to solve, but you should have understood them for years before you started this company. Like the time to learn about them is not like after you've raised, you know, investor money. Like the time to learn about it is, you know, the rest of your life beforehand. And if you, you know, if you if you don't understand them and you think you're going to do some interviews and really understand the problems, then like I think you're just working in the wrong field. So like I wouldn't I wouldn't start on something I don't I don't understand pretty deeply, um, or back someone who's working on something they don't understand pretty deeply. Uh, because again, people who are really passionate about something, they've probably already spent years thinking about it. So you don't need to talk to customers early on before you have a product because you should have already, you should already understand the problem. You, know, you should need to validate it. So the first time you should talk to customers is when you can put something in front of them. You can put your product in front of them and you say, here, we made this, please use it. And then tell us what, what do you like and what don't you like? And then that feedback is very useful, but only the feedback, the negative feedback, the positive feedback is usually not useful, but the negative feedback is very useful, but not in a way that they're going to tell you what you should do differently because they're not, but you'll, you'll at least get honest feedback about what's not working, what's broken, what's causing pain. And then you have to go and figure out how to, how to fix it. So I don't see it as a balance. I don't see it as a trade-off. I just see it as like information from talking to customers is very useful in a, in a narrow time and place and not useful otherwise. And you know, everyone should just do their job. And the job of the product designers is to design products. And the job of the customers is not to design products. Occasionally, you'll get a recommendation from a customer for a feature that's really a really good idea. But then that, that customer just happens to be a good product designer. And then you should try to hire that person immediately. <laughs> uh, that, that's happened to us a few times. Like I have, I have certainly in my career gotten amazingly good recommendations from customers. I'm like, holy crap. You really like, that's a really good idea. And we hire those people who we try to. But it doesn't happen often. Interesting. Phil, um, you know, just in, in, in terms of the time uh, running out of it, uh, and I, I promise to not, uh, you know, overtake the time. So, you know, in hindsight of that, thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show. It was really great having you here and you yeah, know, thank you, you having uh, share your um, kind of experience. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm happy to happy to chat anytime, uh, you know, how to re how to reach out. And uh, thanks again for having me on.